Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. On the 29th of May 1660, on his 30th birthday, Charles II rode into London and was restored to the thrones of England and Wales, of Scotland and Ireland. It was claimed that a golden age descended on a people ravaged by civil war, religious division, Cromwellian tyranny and puritanical laws. Theatres were reopened. Christmas, which had been cancelled, was celebrated once again. All orange cellars were beautiful and peace and prosperity reigned across the land. That's one version of the Restoration story. But despite the architecture of Wren and the literature of Dryden, can an era that begins in plague and in fire, continues with no little persecution and culminates in the glorious revolution ever really have had it so good? We relish the joyous diaries of Pepys, what of the dark diary of his contemporary Roger Morris? With me, to separate the good times from the bad times and the Restoration, and to assess its place in our history, is Richard Ollard, author of many historical books on the Stuart period, including The Image of the King, Mark Goldie, a lecturer in history at Churchill College, Cambridge University, and Claire Jackson, Director of Studies in History at Trinity Hall, Cambridge. Can I start with you, Richard Ollard? After the execution of Charles I uh, and then in, in the Civil War of the 1640s, the execution of Charles I, the protectorate or tyranny of uh, Cromwell, whichever way you look at it, uh, Charles II comes back, as we said, on horseback into London. By, it was almost like a royal progress rather than an invasion. What was restored, briefly? We called it the Restoration. What was restored? Well, there was, a, there was a good deal of argument about that at the time. I think that the chief political architect of the Restoration, Charles's first minister at the time, Clarendon, what he thought was restored and what he hoped was restored was the situation more or less after the beginning of the Long Parliament when the monarchy's clause had been pared because Clarendon had been a supporter of Pym in the Long Parliament, and he had voted for the bringing down of the prerogative courts, our chamber, and all those kind of things which are regarded as the instruments of Stuart tyranny. What Clarendon wanted restored was, as he saw it, the old Elizabethan constitution of the king in Parliament, that kind of thing. There were a lot of other people who thought, goodness me, this is a chance to get our own back on those confounded Puritans. Um, and, of course, if you've had your house burnt, your possessions destroyed and so on. And um, your church is ransacked. You feel pretty bitter. Uh, and this is, of course, one of the things about a civil war, why it's so much worse than most other types of war, because it's your neighbours who've done these frightful things to you, not some unknown foreigner. So for some it was restoration, for others it was revenge. Oh, I think certainly some of it was. What is remarkable is how little revenge was taken. I mean, after all, of the regicides, the people who had signed the king's death warrant... I think there were 31 of them still alive. And only 11 were executed. But if you go by the frightful standards of our century, that's pretty good, pretty humane going, I think. So that Clarendon, who was his advisor, wanted it to go back to the King in Parliament, the, good, the, the, the days of good Queen Bess, in a way. That's Mark Goldie, would you, what would you think was restored? Well, there's a sense in which that was a fantastically successful restoration because what came back are institutions that are still with us. Uh, we got back a monarchy, a hereditary monarchy. We got back a hereditary House of Lords. We got back an established Church of England. And it is a quite remarkable fact, of course, about English history that today we have those institutions still. 
So there's a good case for saying that the Civil War, though we think of it as a great uprising, a great revolution, in fact was an incredible failure. Because in 1660, all the old institutions were put back and have stayed with us. Now, I think something we'd want to t- I'd want to take up with you later on is uh, the difference between the early and the later restoration. Mm-hmm. You've said, uh, Richard, that uh, the revenge was slight in 1660, but I think there was an awful lot of papering over the cracks. Your punt on this, Claire Jackson. Well, I think it's important to remember that Charles II was king not only of England and Wales, but also, again, of Ireland and Scotland. So when he was restored to power, so too was the system of multiple monarchy that had existed before. So just as the Cromwellian Republican vision was jettisoned, if you like, in 1660, so too was the imperial vision of uniting Britain. So the only link really associating England, Scotland and Ireland was really the person of Charles II. So when one thinks about putting things back the way they were, if you take somewhere like Scotland, the decision was taken to restore what had been the case in 1633, not as in England, where the monarchy was restored back to its 1641 status, but in Scotland, any legislation that had been passed between 1633 and 1660 was rescinded in a, if you like, legislative attempt to imagine away the entire Civil War period. Now, yes. it's, it wasn't so clear, perhaps, that the political aspirations and the religious freedoms that people had come to enjoy during the 1640s and 1650s could be as easily erased from the public memory as easily as they could be from the statute books. I mean, as a crass anachronism, I mean, it would be like a current administration today trying to revoke all legislation passed since the early 1970s and not expecting tensions to erupt. One of these extraordinary things, uh, uh, Richard Ollard, if you look at it, the, he, uh, Charles II came with just a few hundred men. Cromwell had named his son as his successor, and it was this republic. He had, it was a ferocious. It was a ferocious army. Um, he came with a few hundred men, and town after town fell to him. And it was it was a royal progress rather than an invasion. Was that a superficial welcome, or was that a profound welcome? Can you give us some idea of oh, what the seems evidence. to be the welcome that he received? Oh, all the evidence is that it was an overwhelming welcome, because these other people they'd all failed. You see, um, tumble down Dick as. Um, Cromwell's son was known as. I mean, he had, as Monk, who was the military or- organiser of the Restoration, he, uh, said he'd betrayed himself. I mean, he'd, he'd thrown in the sponge pretty well straight away. And what had happened then had been various attempts to set up different forms of government, which lasted a few weeks. And this is one of the reasons why people were so frightfully enthusiastic for the Restoration, because they thought, thank goodness we're getting back to something stable, something we know. We have some idea what's going to be going on next month. Whereas if you're changing governments, you have no idea what's going to be happening in two or three weeks' time. It's very disturbing if you just get on the ordinary business of earning your living and educating your children and that kind of thing. Is there a sense in which, I'm just asking, is there a sense in which people were rather um, regretted, rather rather ashamed of, rather felt guilty about executing a king, executing Charles I, and they were making it up to his son? Oh, I, the execution of Charles I was manifestly very unpopular. It was carried through by a small army junta, uh, and I think they had very good reasons for doing it. The main reason being that Charles I was simply a man you couldn't do business with, that um, you could never trust anything he said, um, and that he would agree to all kinds of things. And then you'd find letters that he was writing to somebody else, making it perfectly plain that he would string you up as soon as he could. Well, this doesn't exactly encourage trust in the persons you're negotiating with. Um, It seemed to them the only thing to do was to eliminate him. But he was very unpopular in the country. Very unpopular. I just thought of the most horrifying thing. See, next to executing God, 
um, executing the king, who is his vicegerent in a lot of people's thinking, um, it was the most frightful thing. And it was it was a, it was it was different from a mere assassination, which was quite a common thing in the monarchies of Europe. Can I just take up a, 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 a continue? Sorry, to continue with this point of establishing the restoration before we move on. Just one or two more questions, uh, Mike Goldie. The Declaration of Breda was a sort of restoration manifesto. This is what Charles II was going to do, and it would heal and settle deep divisions in society. Um, do you think that he carried that through? Attempted to carry that through? Did that have an influence? Was that part of the welcome that Richard Ollard has described? He received. Well, I think Charles was very skillful at making promises all round. Are we talking and Charles II now? Charles II, yeah. I'm sorry, yes. Um, and one of the reasons why he was indeed very popular at the beginning of his reign was that I think people imagined many kinds of restoration. In many senses, the restoration was uh, an open book yet to be written. So there are many people who come on side with Charles II who, in fact, had fought his father. Mm. and had been horrified yes. at, at what had happened, at, so. the Pandora's box they'd opened up yeah, in the much. 1640s. They'd been horrified, as you say, by the execution of Charles I. So lots of people come on side in 1660. And the Declaration of Breda is a very skilful document issued by Charles II just before he left Holland for England, um, offering especially a, a general indemnity so that no one, except the regicides, no one would suffer for the political crimes that they'd committed in the previous 20 years. And he made an offer of uh, what seemed like religious toleration, and he wasn't able to deliver on that. Well, let's move to religious toleration, because religion was very much the centre of the whole uh, enterprise of state and of living at that time in a way which is quite difficult for us to reimagine, but there it was, to put it at the simplest. Uh, how far did that tolerance go? Was it really, did he really introduce tolerance? Well, I think, as Mark was saying, um, there was a genuine desire to bring everyone on side. And I think if we just stay with the figure of Charles II for a moment, left to his own devices, there are a lot of Tolerate, tolerationist issues and successes that he probably could have had. But when Richard at the beginning mentioned desires for revenges, I mean, it was often the case that the English Parliament was perhaps more royalist than the royal himself in mm -hmm. terms of establishing the sort mm. of monarchy they wanted. Um, so in terms of the religious settlement that was established, it was more narrow probably than the monarch's own desires. I mean, in England there was a very narrow Clarendon Code, it later became a narrow, narrow code of Anglicanism and conformity that was established. In Scotland, the situation was again somewhat different in that Episcopalianism, against Charles's own wishes, was restored on what was a predominantly Presbyterian population mm -hmm. who were deeply suspicious of church involvement with the state, oh, state involvement with the church. Would it be too simple, to put it crudely, to say that you had the Anglican royalists in the middle there and they felt assailed? They, they felt assailed and fearful of the Roman Catholics and they wished to assail uh, the nonconformists. And so it's, it's going both sides. Was that. Was no, that, I wouldn't say that. Wouldn't that, that I way. thought that uh, the anti Catholic mania of England in the 17th century is almost inconceivable. I mean, it, it, uh, the kind of feelings about um, communists in America in the McCarthy era, uh, the kind of things that um, come to mind, that it was the Roman Catholics, there was never, in fact, any danger of them at all taking over until, of course, you arrived with, at the time of James II, uh, who was totally unfitted to be king and a complete idiot, really, um, and attempted to enforce um, um, Roman Catholicism on a country which was bitterly, madly 
anti-Catholic. Do you find that, uh, Mark Gold? Do you find, how do you how do you assess the the, the so-called the, the toleration of King Charles II? Because it's thought of he comes back with tolerance after this extremism of Cromwell. What do you think really happened? Well, I think as we mentioned a moment ago, there are two sides to this. The king himself has many. Uh, desires for toleration, mm, I think, partly certainly. because uh, he's either because he's indifferent or because he has a secret yearning for toleration for Catholics in particular, mm. um, or simply an indifference, or simply wishing to keep people on side because mm. he knows well that if you persecute, you lose you lose supporters. Mm. But it's a very different story uh, in terms of the. Anglican royalists who do want to persecute. And I think it's there in the field of religion that we get to the dark side of the Restoration. And um, Could you tell us a bit about that? Things like the Hilton Gang, which would be yes, for instance. Yes, yes. Um, in the 1680s, and I think we have to talk about different parts of the Restoration here, by the mm. end of the reign, 60, things 60 are much to 85. tougher. So you're talking 25 years. We are, yeah. we are. And from the late 70s to the early 80s, you get a very different picture in which the uh, gloves are off and many of the old scores begin to be settled. There's a visceral hatred of a lot of the old Puritans uh, who they call fanatics. Mm. Now, we're talking here about the... Uh, the whole nonconformist tradition that had grown up in the Civil War, the Congregationalists, the Presbyterians, the Quakers, who will be a great tradition of English descent and nonconformity. But they don't get their freedom until the end of the 17th century. And what you get in the whole restoration period, Charles II's reign, is actually the last attempt in English history to force people to be of one religion. Mm. And by the 80s, it gets pretty vicious. And the Hilton gang is a nice example, well, a pretty ghastly example of it, actually. Uh, John Hilton is a nasty piece of work. He's basically a criminal who leads a criminal gang in London in the early 1680s. Now, the laws allow for, uh, for informers you get one-third of the fine if you catch people. This was a standard part of the English legal system. You don't have a professional police force, so the laws encourage citizens to find criminals. But by applying the idea of informers to religious issues, you simply license people to go and tell on Quaker meetings. His gang, many of them were women, went round the streets pretending to convert to uh, the Baptists or the Quakers, finding out these secret, illegal meetings for worship, reporting them to the authorities. And this gang throughout the 80s, early 80s, had a monopoly on prosecution in London for nonconformity. Ordinary artisans, ordinary uh, traders in the streets of London are being fined, imprisoned, because of their religious beliefs. And that, I think, is the seamy side mm. uh, by the end of the reign. In Scotland, I think the stakes become even higher. Um, I mean, I think the key thing to appreciate here as well about religious intolerance is that on the part of the authorities, there's an intrinsic link seen between religious nonconformity and political disloyalty. And this link was resented by a lot of dissenters who felt that there was no incompatibility with being loyal to the monarch as well as dissenting in religion. But in Scotland, with a minority-established church, the state embarked on what was an increasingly ruthless, increasingly systematic, and by the end, almost desperate attempt to try and get the majority of the population to conform. And it ushered in the period that's characteristically known as the killing times in Scotland, as increasingly bloody means were taken to adopt this. Um, screws on display in open court. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, as Mark was saying, informing was part of the English legal process. Well, so too was the use of t judicial torture in both England and Scotland to secure confessions, not as part of the legal process in the middle of a trial, but well-known Presbyterians were 
I mean, the other flip side of the killing times is not only the people that the state that were being murdered, uh, the state people that were being murdered, but um, the pressure placed on prominent nonconformists to divulge information about conspiracies. And there were two main forms of torture used in Scotland in a way that they weren't used to the same extent in England. The first was thumbscrews, as you say, which is a sort of macabre form of nutcracker. Um, you can see them in the National Museum of Scotland today, but tiny little stocks in which thumbs were placed and basically screws were tightened and the thumbs would break. Um, at the same time, often as what was known as the boot, which was, I mean, it was described in the 1670s as a sort of contraption that would surround a young sapling from rabbits, well, the same sort of contraption was applied to the leg, two concentric circles. Wedges were driven into those circles until eventually the shin split and the and the, the bones broke. And very prominent Presbyterians in Scotland, uh, people like William Carstairs, who later became pre uh, principal of Edinburgh University, was William of Orange's chaplain, suffered that kind of torture. And after the Restoration, when Presbyterianism was re restored in Scotland, the Privy Council actually gave Carstairs the, the, the thumbikins, as they were known, the thumbscrews, which were a recent import from Moscow, uh, as a memento of the, the intolerance. So we have this hysterical anti-Catholicism and, 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 and quite the serious persecution of 400 Quakers in jail, show trials and so on. So let's turn to the king himself now. Um, there was a feeling that he did bring back golden days. It was a golden age. We, we know the great uh, burst through of writers and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and Peeps, uh, Samuel Pepys says of Charles, I do perceive the king is a man like other men, which was a great compliment at that. And John Evelyn says, a prince of many virtues and a great many imperfections, debonair, easy of access, not bloody or cruel. So what sort of man are we talking about? And what power did he have, Richard Ollard? Well, I think one of the things he had, I think he must have been one of the most unshy monarchs that, that we've ever had. Uh, he was very easy in conversation, and, of course, he was wonderfully witty. I mean, the, the, it seems to me the best repartee in the English language is that answer he gave that verse, you know, here lies a great and famous king whose promise none relies on, who never said a foolish thing or ever did a wise one. And Charles replied, very true, for my words are my own and my acts are my ministers. Well, that, that's game set and parish, isn't it? And it's off the cuff, straight away, wonderful. Um, and he was, he was a very witty and a entertaining man. He liked good conversation. I mean, look at the patronage he extended to unpopular people like Hobbes, whom the bishops were anxious to, um, as Aubrey points out, uh, to have the good old gentleman condemned as a heretic. Um, and uh, he, was, he was lively. What power, can you give us some idea of the power he had? It's quite a difficult quest, uh, question to answer very simply because you could say that he had quite limited powers. He doesn't have a large army like some of his con mm -hmm. continental neighbours. Um, he does, on the other hand, hold constitutional trump cards, uh, particularly over Parliament. And towards the end of his reign, he certainly uses those pretty freely, uh, dismissing Parliament, trying to manipulate when Parliament meets or how it's elected. I think one of the really interesting things is the extraordinary cult of monarchy that you get in the Restoration period, uh, through the pulpit, through the endless preachings about obedience to monarchs, uh, through the poetry and the parallels drawn with the biblical King David or Caesar Augustus of Rome. There are statues still of Charles II with the laurel wreaths, wreath of a Roman emperor 
Uh, Charles, or rather one of his physicians, knew a good thing when he saw one because the um, power that kings had of touching for the king's evil, of mm-hmm. curing the diseased scrofula, was uh, turned up to a great pitch under Charles II, who touched more of his um, uh, subjects in more ways than one. <laughs> than, than, I'm sure you're getting into trouble there. <laughs> than, uh, any other monarch. But there was uh, quite a... Uh, throughout the country, ordinary parishioners would would contribute money for very ordinary people to be sent up to London to be touched by the king. They'd be given a, a medallion, which they'd always treasure, called the touch piece. And this this cult, uh, tens of thousands of people were touched in this way. Just to do- talk about it from a different uh, point of view, uh, Clyde Jackson, you've studied a lot of the Scottish correspondence of the period and examined the papers of the Earl of Lauderdale, Lord Charles II's right-hand man, and there's a great... Ham House French influence, we might get around to that. Uh, uh, and so, what what impression do you have from studying those papers, particularly of Lauderdale's influence on him? What sort of powers did he have? What sort of man comes out from there? It's very interesting. I mean, I think there is this duality of perspective the whole way through the Restoration. I mean, just, just speaking broadly for a moment, I mean, that people are aware that they don't want to revisit the years of sort of regicide and religious excess and republicanism. On the other hand, they're continually apprehensive about the future. Charles is failure to produce an heir. And a lot of that duality often comes through, I mean, if you take somebody like Lauderdale through the correspondence, I mean, at one side, this is, as Richard was saying, a monarch who doesn't take things too seriously. I mean, last summer I was reading an account from a courtier at Whitehall Um, when the monster petition, as it was known, was delivered in January 1680 to Charles, petitioning him to call a parliament. So we're quite far through the restoration by this stage. But this was a huge petition. I mean, the bits we have at the moment aren't complete, but, I mean, about 16,000 people had put their names to a petition. And according to the courtier, when it was delivered, Charles accepted it, had problems holding on to it. And um, Lauderdale turns to him and says, well, if nothing else, Your Majesty, at least the Palace of Whitehall won't need any toilet paper for the foreseeable future. And both of them thought this was hysterically witty. But, I mean, this was a petition that people had removed their signatures from at the last minute because they faced serious judicial comeback. So there is that side. On the other side, this is also a society that's characterised by paranoia about secrets, conspiracies, lies. So if you take... You make the point about masks being... Yes. I mean, we tend to think of the Restoration as being characterised by equivocy and dissimulation that you would see at the theatre through a mask, masquerade or a comedy. But, I mean, you only need to look at a correspondence of somebody like Lauderdale. I mean, sections are written in invisible ink, for example, um, which is often was often lemon juice or milk, but was often also a more complicated chemical compound. One of Lauderdale's most frequent correspondents was Sir Robert Murray, who, in addition to being a politician, was also a very keen scientist and chemist, later became the first president of the Royal Society, who spent a long time in the laboratory trying to work out how to devise a more complex form of invisible ink. But he was always worried that Lauderdale wouldn't remember to read the politically sensitive sections of the letters that were written in invisible ink. I mean, they would be very banal letters about sort of today I went to see a play. Um, So he devised his own system on top of this, whereby if he ever signed, if Murray ever signed his name with a Masonic pentacle, this this would indicate he was playing the Mason. Therefore, Lauderdale was to look for particular sections written in invisible ink. I mean, this causes enormous headaches for a historian, as you can imagine. Um, The other problem for a historian as well is, I mean, there's a sense of the paranoia is that instead of best wishes at the end of most letters, there's always the line, burn this, I entreat you. So, in a way, the only way in which we have all this correspondence is just because the recipient, Lauderdale, was often very careless about burning letters. 
Can we just briefly talk about uh, any the relevance the restoration might have, the legacy that it left us? Richard, what legacy do you see it is leaving us, the restoration? Uh, it's one of the, the great periods of English literature, unquestionably. And you have um, Milton, the supporter of Charles II, writing what is arguably the greatest poem in the English language. Um, you have Clarendon writing... I think, on the most marvellous history books, certainly the most interesting one that had yet been written. Uh, you have the Book of Common Prayer, which is still so highly controverted, um, which expresses, I mean, the, the use of language. It's, I think, isn't there one of T.S. Eliot's essays, which is almost impossible to find any bad prose written in the Restoration period. It's, it was a wonderful period, for the use of language, and not only language. What about music? What about painting? And Purcell, Lille, all these people. Um, it was. Um, uh, I'm not saying that Charles II was responsible for all this, but it was a wonderfully rich period. Well, that's quite interesting. Do you give no no special credit to him for it, Mark Gildy? He, he stands aside so much of the time, I think. Uh, he's very good at standing aside and letting, th letting things happen around him. And he's and his, in the famous phrase, he didn't want to go on his travels again, and he was brilliantly successful at that. Even in the worst moments at the end of his reign, he did, after all, reign for 25 years. I think one of the, mo the most revealing instances of that standing aside is when that fearful rogue, Oates, came up before the council, and he claimed that Don John had um, given instructions for a plot. He was then the governor of the Spanish Netherlands um, to be coordinated with people in England and they were going to land troops, that sort of stuff. And Charles II asked Oates to describe Don John. And Oates went ahead and described him with absolutely no physical resemblance at all. Of course, Charles II and the Duke of York had played tennis with him, had hunted with him, that kind of thing. They knew exactly what he looked like. But having discovered that Oates was a complete liar. Charles did nothing, said nothing. He didn't reckon that he had enough power behind him to stop the media were in full cry, um, and that he hadn't, as Mark Goldie points out, any military power behind him or anything of that kind. Um, it was... Uh, he was too prudential to risk his neck on I think in terms of the legacy as well mm. that the Restoration left, I think this was an age when people were labelled... Um, I mean, although it was an age of dissimulation and equivocation, people were terribly keen to label people in loyal or disloyal. Mm. So something like the Popish plot and the exclusion crisis bequeathed, somewhat anachronistically to say so, but I mean bequeathed the modern party system into Tories and Whigs, oh, and colours started being worn for Tory party affiliations. Yeah. And the I mean, the real coffeehouse society, I mean, there were Whig coffeehouses like the Swan in Fish Street mm. and the Angel at the Old Exchange mm. and Tory taverns mm. like Sam's Coffee House in Ludgate Street. And news was so important to get the right kind of information, this quest always to get the latest news from the continent and to rush to the coffee house and exchange that news and spread the gossip and spread the rumours is... I mean, the cafe society did begin, in, really, in the Restoration in that sense. I think the, la the labelling's a very nice point because one of the great legacies of the Restoration is a, a two-culture society which lasted really down to the 19th and 20th century between church and chapel, which very quickly became mapped onto urban and rural because many of these dissenters... Uh, were based in the towns, in trade, in merchanting, and that got mapped in turn onto Whig and Tory. Um, so you get 
a division of politics, of religion and of temperament in English society that runs, I think, all the way from the 1660s, Charles's reign, right through until the end of that kind of politics in the 19th century. Well, thank you very much, Clive Jackson, Mark Goldie and Richard Ollard, and thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.